As you know, we've been in the book of Ephesians uh, for, for 10 months. And we, we started at the very beginning this study on the kingdom of God. And, and Ephesians offers us this brilliant backdrop to the kingdom of God. And the first section in Ephesians talks about, within the context of the kingdom, it talked about what it means to be a child of God about the gospel and our salvation and the, the continuing power that is available to us through the presence of God by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we called that first section of our study Kingdom Kids. What does it mean to be a kingdom kid, to be a child of God? And then uh, just before the beginning of summer, we started the second section as the Apostle Paul transitioned out of talking about individuals exclusively and now has been talking about what it means to be the family of God. And the second section we're calling Kingdom Family. And we've been learning through the Apostle Paul's letter what it means for us to live this out together. And we're at the point in the book of Ephesians where Paul draws this line, which is why there's a chapter break here. We're going to start now in chapter 4. So the first three chapters, the first half of the book of Ephesians, uh, we've studied that. And now Paul shifts his vocabulary entirely. Having spent the first three chapters talking about what God has done for us, he now spends the last three chapters of the book talking about how we walk this out. What does this look like? And so the title of the sermon today is Walking the Walk. And we're going to be looking at just the first verse of Ephesians chapter 4. And so let's read our passage and then uh, pray for the grace of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit as we endeavor to study. And I'll be reading and teaching interchangeably with, uh, from the New Living Translation and the New American Standard Bible. I'll read now from the NLT, the New Living Translation. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Church, this is the word of God. Let's, let's pray now. Father, we come before you this morning with, with our Bibles open, with our ears open. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to open the eyes of our heart, to open our minds to your truth. Thank you, God, for your word. Just confess my inability to, to really understand and connect your word to my heart. I'm not able to do that on my own. And so, God, we ask for the grace to understand and apply and the power to walk in your word, to walk in what is true. We pray, God, that you would do that ministry now as we endeavor to read and study your word. And we do all of this for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul has spent a long time, 10 months worth of studying, he's spent describing the truth of the gospel. These are what we call um, indicatives, what has been done for us, the things that are already set upon the table for us to enjoy. Indicative is what is true of us because of what God has done for us. So we, we've read that we're loved by God, we're pursued by God, we're rescued and redeemed by God, we are brought near to God. All of this has happened to us and for us 
by God. And Paul lays out the gospel in powerful detail. And he spends, you know, the, the last 10 months, three chapters in the book of Ephesians, describing God's rescue of humanity and this sweet new reality that we have in Christ. And now in chapter four, as I mentioned earlier, there's this kind of shifting of gears. And he shifts from the indicatives, what's true about us, what God has done, into the first imperative. An imperative is, is our response. In light of what is true, because of what is true about us, Paul starts laying out the vital action that's required in order for us to now walk in that truth. And so Paul changes his wording, and he starts to talk about how we, how we the church, we ought to conduct ourselves in light of what we believe, in light of what we now know to be true as Christians. And it's a big shift. It's a big change. And this change in vocabulary marks the tone and nature of the rest of the letter, chapters 4 through 6, and reveals how we ought to live in light of the gospel. And so we're going to take some time to study and examine, and by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, apply and walk in the Word of God. Now, our verse today is Paul's introduction to this shift of focus, this shift from who we are to now how we walk. And it's important for us to hear and receive because we don't naturally walk this way. Those amazing, nice people you know don't naturally walk in what Paul is talking about here. This imperative that Paul gives us to walk worthy of our calling, it's, it's something that's not, that idea is not foreign to our understanding, although we don't naturally walk in it. Because we all understand the need to walk worthy of our calling, the need to walk in what we have committed to. For example, when we join an organization or a team, or you join a, a secret society or a car club or whatever, we obligate ourselves to live and to act in accord with the standards of that society and in accord with the standards of that community. And we obligate ourselves to function according to the aims and the objectives and the goals and the drives and the purposes of the community or the society to which We've attached ourselves as an American citizen. To live in the United States of America as a citizen of the United States, we obligate ourselves to abide by the principles and the standards and even the laws of our society. We're obligated to those things. We walk worthy of those things. And there's these amazing indicatives that are true of us. If you're an American citizen, there are, there are amazing indicatives, things that are true for you just because you're a citizen here, right? We're free people, free to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're protected by the law against government tyranny and also tyrants, individual tyrants. We're guaranteed certain rights and privileges as citizens. We're expected and obligated to invest in society, to participate in society. We walk as worthy citizens in our culture. It's the same in the workplace. When a person is permitted to work, wherever it is that you work, you work there on the premise that you're going to walk in, that you're going to cooperate with, that you're going to join in with the goals and objectives and the principles that are a part of that organization. If you want to become part of an athletic team or a certain religious order, a business, a political party, a club, there are certain principles that you pledge your loyalty to in order to uphold. And the opposite of that is if you choose not to cooperate, 
And if you walk in a manner that is contradictory to what you have pledged to, then you'll lose your place within that organization or within that society. And so when an American walks in a manner that is contradictory to the rights and freedoms of our society, right, when we fail to fulfill the purposes and aims of our citizenship, or when someone ignores the laws that govern society, that person becomes a hindrance to society and is dismissed from it and is set aside, right? You're incarcerated. You're actually pulled out of society and, and, and separated and segregated. This is how human society is. This is how culture is. And each one of us are called to walk according to that with which we identify. I remember the, um, in playing baseball all growing up, things changed when I got to high school. Uh, high school is where baseball gets hardcore. And I remember at the, the beginning of my high school baseball experience, I'd never had a coach say this. The coach is like, hey, if you're not willing to do it our way, then you're off the team. Like, maybe you should just go to a different high school if you're not willing to learn this, whatever, whatever it was we were learning. And it was like, holy cow. It was this serious call to step up in my obedience and to get on board, to get on the same page with the rest of the team. It's like joining the military. The first thing any military in the world will teach you is how to look like a soldier, how to act like a soldier, how to march. You're going to spend a lot of time marching at the very beginning. This desire and drive to identify with others can be good. It can be good for our culture. It can be good for society. It can be good for relationships. But it also can be very bad. We see examples of this being very bad all throughout Scripture. Uh, probably one of the most poignant is in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We see a story of Jesus healing a man, and this man had been born blind. So he, he hadn't become blind by accident. He was born without the ability to see. This man had been blind his entire life. And you know the story, Jesus scoops up some clay from the ground, and he just spits in it and generates mud using his saliva and this clay, packs it on this other person's eyes, and then tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The guy goes down to the pool, rinses his eyes off, and he gains the ability to see. This is a supernatural miracle. Not the healing of something that had been injured, but the ability granted to someone who had never formally had that ability. And then, of course, the religious leaders. They, they, they start an inquest. They want to know what's going on, right? And it's always sad in Scripture when unbelief investigates a miracle. You, you never get positive results. And in John chapter 9, we don't get good results here. They wanted to talk to the blind man's parents, right? They're trying to get down to the bottom of this. And that's where we're going to read for just a moment here. In John chapter 9, starting in verse 19, they questioned the parents saying this. Listen to this. Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? Verse 20, his parents answered them and they said, we know that this is our son and yes, that he was born blind. Verse 21, but how he now sees we do not know or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, and his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of the leaders. For they had already agreed that if someone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, that he would be put out of the synagogue. To put out of the synagogue, the Greek word that's used in this passage, it literally means to be unsynagogued or desynagogued, excommunicated in other words. Verse 23, it was for this reason that the parents said, he is of age, 
ask him. In other words, the parents wouldn't acknowledge anything about how their son was healed. They wouldn't discuss how he was healed. They wouldn't give credit to Jesus. They wouldn't give glory to God. They didn't want to get involved. They, they pointed the leaders back to the son. Now, why is this? Why, is, why do the parents defer to their son? Because it tells us in that passage, they feared for their reputation. They were so driven by the desire for social acceptance that they had chosen to not confess that the sight of their own son had come at the hands of Jesus. They literally feared that they would lose their social status. Now, it seems crazy when I read that passage, that these parents won't confess the reality of the miraculous healing of their own blind son because they feared that they would get, as, as it says in the Greek, unsynagogued. They would get excommunicated. And the thing that mattered most to these parents was not the truth of what had happened. It was belonging. What mattered most to them was belonging to the society which they had decided to identify with. I think we can all relate to this. People can identify with things so strongly that they become blind to the reality of what they ought to know. We can become blind to the reality of what we ought to be a part of. We see this in politics. Political identity can blind us to bigger, broader truths. Social issues can do the same thing when we get so impassioned and so bore down so, so tightly on an issue that we can lose sight of what is, what is true and what God's doing around us. We can become so impassioned with acceptance and belonging and feeling right that we ignore much bigger principles and much bigger truths that may be at work in the world around us. The living God had stepped out of heaven, was walking as a man, and he had stepped into this family, and he had changed and fixed something in this family that would have completely crippled this family. That guy being born without the ability to see would not have only been crippling for him, it would have been crippling for his entire family. There were absolutely no accommodations made for someone like that in the first century. It was completely up to his family to provide for him. It was entirely up to his family to keep him healthy and to keep him safe and to move him around. Jesus had lifted something that had been a massive burden on this entire family. These parents were so desperate for acceptance and they were so fearful of making waves in their culture that they rejected the truth they rejected the literal handiwork of the living God in order to hold on to their perception of what was socially right and what was socially good. Now, had these parents been seeing things clearly and thinking clearly, they would have immediately wanted to identify and rejoice with their healed son rather than throwing their son to the wolves, right? It's like they turn on their son. Ask him. He's of age. If they had been thinking clearly, they would have wanted to receive and, and rejoice in the one who had made the blind to see. What a, what a miracle. What an act of grace upon that family. The power of God was on display, but they were blind to it. There was real power at work, and their desire to belong and their desire to fit in with social norms kept them blind to what was real, while their physically blind son gained the ability to truly see. This is this sad irony that we see here. The man born blind gained sight this day, while those who could see became blind. 
It's ironic, isn't it? It's sad. It's tragic. We see another tragic example of this in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, starting in verse 42. It says, Many, nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. That's the same word in the Greek. For fear that they would be excommunicated. They'd be kicked out of the religious life of Israel. They wouldn't be able to sacrifice to God because they wouldn't be allowed in the temple. Verse 43. Here's why. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. It's the same thing again. People had made such a firm commitment to society and were so firmly desperate for the approval of men that there was no way that they were going to sacrifice social standing or reputation. They actually damned their own souls in that instance to adhere to a social code, to put it bluntly. See, this is how it is with, with humanity's willingness to conform to the standards of a group of people to which we make our allegiance. The group of people where we gain our sense of identity Now, this is obviously the negative side of our desire for acceptance. God created us to be accepted. The drive of the human heart to belong is very strong. We are created in the image of God, and God exists in community. He created us to desire approval and acceptance. The desire to feel like a part of something is compelling in our lives. And it's amazing for us to see the crazy things that people are willing to identify with or identify in or seek out to find their identity. It's incredible what some people are willing to do in order to feel accepted from others. But if something interesting happens when we look at the church, and, and I'm, I'm only telling you this, not, not as a, to condemn you, but as a personal testimony. In my life, for decades I would attend church. And people like me, we see people come into the church and I would come and I would want the blessing of God. I wanted the rights of God. I wanted the privileges and the honors of identifying in Jesus, being a part of something. I wanted to go to youth group as a high schooler. I I wanted to have friends that my parents would let me spend their night at their house and be able to go on camps and retreats and things like that. I, I wanted to belong and I wanted to be a part of, but somewhere along the line, Somewhere along the line, it broke down because I wasn't willing to make a commitment to identify my lifestyle and identify my behavior and identify the trajectory and the the future decisions that I was going to make to be in line with the call of God in Christ. And for some reason, the call to walk in Christ didn't seem to be nearly as binding in my life as the call to adhere to social norms. I was way too interested and not feeling accepted. And while it seems as though Satan is out to hold our hearts close to the world and to keep us desperate for the world's approval, it also was very true that there was a a real spiritual battle in my life for decades, that the enemy was at work in my life to keep me from connecting, not socially connecting, but heart-connecting. And so there was this tremendous disparity between what I believed and how I lived. Paul is writing into that, explicitly writing into that very same dynamic 
in this church in Asia Minor and into the church in Ephesus. He's writing into a group of believers that believe one thing, but but aren't walking it out. They're, They're not embracing what is true of them and living an empowered and fruitful life in light of it. And so Paul's language is, he's literally begging. He's pleading with these Christians to walk worthy of the calling, this calling that they'd received by God in Jesus. Having spent literally three chapters outlining the privilege and the position and the promises that we have in Jesus, he now, in the last three chapters, he says, here's the deal. If you want a meaningful, to be a meaningful part of the family of God, if you want to walk in true power and true purpose and in true peace, When you lay your head down at night, you know who you are. The hamster wheel isn't spinning and spinning. And we're worried and getting up. And we're worried and we're concerned. that The Prince of Peace to take up residence in our heart, for that to mean something in our demeanor, in our our dream life, in, in our planning. In order for that to happen, there has to be a connection between what we believe and how we walk. Paul is begging for this to happen. See, when we entered the family of God, those of you who have said yes and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus and have confessed your sins and continue to walk in repentance with God, we became a part of his household immediately. We became a part of his family. I became one of the branches that extends from the branch, Jesus. It's a very intimate description that Paul has outlined for us in Ephesians. We became a part of him. And he gave us the rights, the privileges, and the honor that he deserves. Jesus exchanged his perfection. He exchanged his grace. He exchanged his approval before the Father. He exchanged all of that for my dirty wreck of a life. That's all I had when I met Christ. There was nothing impressive about me. There was nothing good to my credit apart from Christ. Jesus exchanged my, the red ink of my life with approval and joy before the Father. He made us unsearchably rich in that moment. Paul has said in the beginning of Ephesians that he blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. He has set aside the future for our benefit. He's talked about all these incredible riches. And now he's saying on the basis of these promises, on the basis of these promises, walk in it. Walk as worthy of that. And so Christian, the, the question for us this morning is, how do I align my life to live according to what is most true about me? Most of us live our lives according to what is true about us, right? In order to live in Ventura County, you got to make a lot of money. You do, especially comparatively. But what if God is calling you to not make a lot of money, but make just enough money? How are we ever going to hear that voice if we're not willing to say yes to what he's doing? Maybe God is calling us to sell everything and move somewhere. See, Paul is saying that we, we, have, to, we have to live not just for what is true. That's how culture lives. we got to pay our bills. That's true. So make money. we, we got to... We have to socially be involved. We don't want our kids to be weird and not be involved. So we've got to let them be involved, right? What are we sacrificing on the altar of social acceptance? See, God might be calling us 
into a deeper understanding of who we are in Christ to the point where we're willing to make sacrifices, where we're willing to change what is true about us to accepting what is more true about us. See, in Christ, we are new creations. So we live new lives. How do I now realign my life to live according to what is most true about me in Christ? And the Apostle Paul clearly exhorts us to walk worthy of such a calling. This is who you are, he says. Now walk in it. Walk according to that. And the Lord invites us. And to use the vocabulary from this first verse, actually, the Lord expects us to act like members of his family. He expects us to act like kingdom kids, to act like a kingdom family. He invites us and expects us to aim our lives at what he is aiming at. He invites us into that. He invites us and expects us to set the goals of our life where He sets the goals for our life. To have the objectives for our life that are His objectives. He invites us into this relationship and expects us to grow in Him as children. I remember a long time ago when I was in college, a New Testament professor once said this. He said, the whole Christian life is simply becoming what you are. Becoming who you already are. Jesus has defined who you are and His Spirit leads you in how you now live. And so, our goal is to live up to who you truly are. And He's right. And the body of Christ, if you're a Christian, God has given you an identity. He gives us the ability to conform to His standards. Not a conformity to rules and regulations out of fear, right? That's not what Paul is saying here. It's not a conformity to rules and regulations out of some twisted legalistic pride that we get, right? Being more holy than other people. No, God creates in us a heart that conforms to righteousness out of a deep love and a deep affection for Jesus. Our eyes are on Jesus. I now want to do what God wants me to do. I now want to be what God wants me to be because of His incredible gift of love. I want to walk worthy. I want to be a worthy son. I want to walk as a worthy child. Not to earn it from God. I can't earn that from God because I've already been given that identity from God. I don't earn my worthiness to walk. That worthiness has been given to you in Christ. Paul saying, now walk in it. The first three chapters of Ephesians are this positional truth. The resources, the riches, the things that God has done for us. We've spent several months studying these things, and they're amazing. I'm just going to quickly try to make it quick, I promise you. I'm going to share a list of some of the incredible things that Paul has outlined. These are things that if you're in Christ, these are true of you. This This is you. This is your identity if you are in Christ. First of all, we see that God is our Father. He starts this whole thing off by inviting us into this vocabulary and this relationship. And listen to me. Your definition of who God is is going to totally affect the trajectory of your life. Because if you think that God is a loveless slave master that just wants you to obey Him at the expense of relationship, your life is not going to look like what the Apostle Paul is explaining in the end of Ephesians here. 
God is not a loveless slave master. God is a loving father. And Paul invites us into this vocabulary at the very beginning of this letter. We saw that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. We learned that God has chosen us before the foundations of the world. It's not just the the smart people that are Christians. It's not just the people that need a crutch that, that go for religion or whatever our culture might say. God chose you before the foundations of the earth. Get over yourself, right? God picked you. You're here because God says, come into my family. Welcome. God made us to be holy. He made us to be blameless. It's not just the good Christians that are holy and blameless. God created you in his image. You have a purpose in your life. We learn that God adopted us as children. That he made us to the praise of his glory, which is such a beautiful expression. You're not an accident. You're not like the black sheep of God's family. God created you for the praise of his glory. When he looks down from heaven at you, he's not just face palming every day. He looks down on you from heaven and, and he's like, that's the, I made him, I made her for the praise of my glory that we would embrace and walk in what is true about us in Christ. We learn that he has accepted us. Some of you need to hear this. You are accepted by your father. In Jesus, you have his complete approval. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. Those those things that maybe are a burden to you that you remember from your past, in Christ, God doesn't remember any of it. He is is completely separated. So so get past it. Move on. You don't wear that as who you are. God has forgiven you. The Bible says he's given us wisdom. That means a lot to me. I need wisdom. Thank you, Jesus. God has revealed to us the mystery of his will. It's not a mystery anymore. If you guys picked up on that vocabulary the last few weeks, Paul talks about the mystery, but how it's been revealed, okay? So if you're just like, oh, I don't know, it just says it's a mystery. Look, it's not a mystery. In Christ, it's been revealed. The love of God has been revealed in Jesus. He's given us a future. He says that we haven't even dreamed of. He's given us an inheritance. He's given us his Holy Spirit. That is the power of God, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, is in you. That power is in you. That power is in your junior high student if they're in Christ. The same power that rose Jesus from the the grave. The same power to speak the words of God, a word of knowledge perhaps, into someone's life and see them drop everything and follow Jesus is in your 13-year-old if they're in Christ. And so we encourage them in that. And we build them up in that. He's given us His Spirit. He has made His home in us. We learn that He has taken the far off. He's taken the lost. He's taken those who feel like they've been cut off. And He has brought us all together in Christ and He has made us a family. He has brought us together as a family. We learn that He has revealed to us the great mystery of His love. And that he has invited us to live as his kingdom kids in his kingdom family. Paul said that he strengthens us in our inner person. Strengthening us, as Paul says, in our inner man. So that Jesus can settle down and be at home in us. Listen, that means that the Prince of Peace is settling in and, and making his home. His, his, the Prince of Peace is establishing a kingdom of peace in his people of peace. That is happening in you, Christian. God is in us. 
He's with us. We're filled with love. We have the fullness of God, as the Apostle Paul says, filled to the fullness with God. All of this is what God has done for us in Christ. And now, to intentionally belabor the point more, Paul has this word, therefore, because of that, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With this pointed and direct simplicity, Paul is saying, now get up and walk. Step up into your identity. Rise up into your identity as a child of God. Live this life that you've been given in Jesus. And guys, we have to hear this. If you're like, man, Billy preaches the same sermon every week. I do preach the same sermon every week. Man, rise up into your identity in Christ, church. We need to hear this because we live in a competitive culture. You don't hear this from culture. People in our culture vie for recognition. People are competing for approval. That is what our culture is completely about. And people are willing to exchange their integrity for recognition. The approval that we seek is often won at the expense of another's well-being. That is how we exchange approval and acceptance in culture. It's a cutthroat world we live in. We hear this and we see this everywhere. You have to tear people down if you want to be stronger in politics. We see this in our world. This is the way politics work right now in our culture. The tearing down of others to build up one's self. We see and hear this in popular culture, right? This, uh, gossip and slander is like a fine art in our culture. Just talking about people, we have no idea who they are, shouldn't care about their private lives, but millions of magazines and articles are clicked. There's a a whole economy that's fed off of gossip and slander, the tearing down of other people to entertain us and build us up. That is the way of the world around us. We see it and hear it in science, in art, in business, you name it. This competitive culture, it breeds a strong sense of self-preservation in us, where in order to gain approval, we must take it from someone else. The survival of the fittest mentality. Or to gain an award, we have to sacrifice our integrity. We look out for ourselves because we think that nobody else is looking out for us. See, Paul has been describing what Jesus has done to bring us to himself to bring us into God's family. He has been speaking of the family that we are a part of in Jesus. Listen, he's been speaking of the approval that we have been given in Christ and the recognition that we have been given by God in Christ. You are approved and recognized. Therefore, we don't have to strive for approval and recognition. We've been brought together and we form this new culture This this kingdom culture here on earth as a kingdom family. We live in this culture around us. We live in the world, but we're not of culture. We're not driven by, we're not guided by the same goals or the same philosophy of culture. Now this flies in the face of the cutthroat, competitive self-preservationism that we see in the world around us. But Christian, we're to live in this culture, in this competitive cutthroat culture, But we confront this culture in others with love. We rest in God in the midst of a restless, striving, competitive, 
culture. We have love to offer and time to give because we have endless love from a Father who has approved us. We don't have to compete with our neighbors or our our co-workers or our business partners or or fellow students. We don't have to compete for recognition anymore. You've been recognized by the only one that matters. Christians, the church, the kingdom family should look radically different from the rest of the world. Our currency is love. Our currency is humility. Our currency is joy. Because God has settled all of the striving in Christ. See, Paul's not talking about conformity in the kingdom, uh, like the clothes we wear, or the music we listen to, or art, or science, or, or, or all the other ways that when we get all legalistic, we get like, oh, did you hear what they're listening to? You see how they dress? You know, all the, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about our identity, our heart. He's talking about who we are. And we've been seeing all throughout the book of Ephesians, starting from the very beginning of chapter 1, who we are is different because of whose we are. We belong to God. And Paul has just spent 10 months of us studying, laying out whose we are. And then there's that therefore in this verse. Because of whose you are. Because of what is true of you. He's saying, therefore, because this is true, in light of this, Paul is saying that because of all that God has done for us in Jesus, therefore, your life should look like chapters 4 through 6 that we're going to dive into. If you believe the love of God, and if you believe that the plan of God is real, that Paul has been laying out, that he's been unfolding for us, that God loves you so much, That God created you without sin. He created you without pain. He created you without corruption. That he created you in his image to know him and to be with him and to walk with him. And we see all the way back in Genesis, even when Adam and Eve blew it and rebelled against God and questioned God's goodness when they had absolutely no reason to do so, even after that, God pursues them. Pursuing them. Calling them. Where are you? He knew where they were. See, Paul is saying that because of all that God has done for us through Christ, even though we've become selfish, even though like Adam and Eve, we've questioned God, God loves us so much that he worked and has been at work for centuries, calling and leading his people back to himself, sending a hero, a a better hero for us to follow. Sending a word, a better word for us to receive. Sending a power, His Holy Spirit, a a, a better, the only capable power that brings salvation. If you believe this, Paul is saying, then your life is different than it once was. There's a point in everyone's life where where we were powerless and hopeless, and then there's this point where we are now empowered and hopeful. What is this calling that we've been called to? He's saying that if you've been saved from that, from sin and hopelessness, from the selfishness, then your life will reflect this salvation. This phrase that Paul is using, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, in the Greek, it's a a word that can be used to to mean balance. There's, There's an equilibrium that God is going for here. That the gospel brings balance between the truth that we believe 
and the reality that we live. And the gospel is an empowered call for the Christian upward. God brings us and calls us up. He doesn't lower the standard to bring equilibrium. He raises, by the power of his spirit, he raises our capacity to receive and know his love, as we've learned in the first part of Ephesians, and pour out his love, as we're going to study in the last part of Ephesians. He raises, increases our capacity to be loved and to love. This is what Christ has done for us. Last week, Chad preached a powerful sermon reminding us of who God is, reminding us of what God is capable of. Now, I said it earlier, who God is is going to totally define your Christian experience. If you don't believe that God is capable of more than you could ever ask or imagine, if you don't believe that God is strong enough and desirous enough to change you, what, is, what, what you deeply in your heart know that you can't change yourself, that is going to affect your Christian experience. Last week, Chad, if you haven't listened to last week's message, first of all, Chad gets completely cosmic. It was awesome, right? I was at high school camp. I got to watch it this week. I was like, yes, so good. See, who God is should affect what we expect from him. God is should affect who we are. We are created in the image of God to walk with God, to be with God, to join God in what He is doing in the world around us. We no longer live powerless lives trying to impress people and trying to climb over other people in order to get ahead. Outdressing your neighbor doesn't give you any benefit. Outperforming your coworker is of no real value to you. We're created in the image of God. We now live empowered lives with God as his children. And church, and this is what is so incredible about this. We live these empowered lives with God. We live them together as the family of God, as a kingdom family. God has brought us from far away. He's brought us near to himself and near to one another. And it affects and changes everything in our life. It affects and changes our personal conduct. We live differently because we've been saved from something so radically pulled out of such a radically desperate place and been given such a radical power that our lives are now radical, right? That's that's the story. That's the truth of the gospel. We experience this individually and corporately. We are now different together as a kingdom family. And Paul exhorts us to wrap this up, to walk, to walk. That is a verb. That means to go. That means to react, respond. That means to move forward. And he'll spend the rest of this letter telling us how to walk and and, and helping us on our wobbly knees in our walk with God. See, what's important for us to see today is that we're supposed to walk. And so if you've been sitting, Paul today would say, stand up. If you've been wandering, Paul would say, come on, this way, come together. Here's your family. We're going to walk together. We don't just stay the same. We don't wander. We don't sidestep. Paul says, walk. We walk, we intentionally move in a purposeful manner, in an intentional direction. That's what it means to walk. And Paul says, we walk worthy. 
We walk as a rescued people. We walk as a well-loved people. We walk as children of God. We walk together as siblings, as brothers and sisters. Guys, we walk this out as family, together. And we finally see, Christian, when you finally see what God has done for us, what God has done for you, only then, when you start to really meditate on the love of God and, and receive and accept and assume by the power of the Holy Spirit the love of God in those deep places where you feel unloved or maybe those deep places where you feel unlovable, you need to hear today that God loves you. Receiving this love, is, that, is, that is when we're able to see who we are in Jesus. We naturally want to obey and walk in that good work as a response to this incredible love. It just comes out of us. And so Paul's idea is clear in the passage today. We don't walk worthy so that God will love us. We walk worthy because God does love us. We don't walk worthy in an attempt to become worthy. We walk worthy because we already are worthy in Jesus. God has given us our worthiness in Jesus. You're not earning anything from God by walking as worthy. You are only enjoying the benefits of God in your walk. And if we're going to walk this out, if we're going to walk worthy of this calling, if we're going to walk in the love and the joy and in the power of this new life in Jesus, we have to first let the reality of God's love change our heart and change our mind. There's an important question. I brought this up a couple weeks ago, and I, I just believe it's a prophetic word for the church, and I've been sharing it with the youth, the high school and the junior high this summer. At the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, actually, Jesus calls his disciples together, and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And it's a question, like, what, what's, what am I to people? And there's all these really good things that, the, that uh, Peter responds your teacher, your revered, your reputation precedes you, right? You're, you're, some say you're a prophet even, right? You speak the very words of God. And then Jesus takes it a step further to create a contrast between what the world believes about Jesus and what his followers would believe about him. Christian, this is the contrast that God is creating in our lives by the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The world might think Jesus is one thing, but who do you say Jesus is? Peter on that day confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the living God, the only unique one and only Savior of the world. And the trajectory of Peter's life was completely different from that point on. Peter would go on to see revival. Peter would go on to see thousands of people, entire churches and church communities and church birthing movements start in the wake of his profession of who Jesus was. And Christian today, if you want to live an empowered life, a life living out this identity that you've been given as a free gift of God in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to get on your face before God and ask God for the grace to answer that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? It'll change everything about your life. Jesus is the only one who can love you and save you and empower you and bring you into the presence of God. As we respond now in worship, as we declare what is true about God through singing, I'm going to challenge you to assume a posture of worship. For some of you, that might mean just like 
you know, like putting your hands like this might be the most radical thing that you've ever done in your life, right? You might have learned that it's rude, you know, you just kind of sit there and not to, I don't want to annoy the people around you. Listen, don't worry about the people around you. Worship the living God today. Allow the Holy Spirit to bring you into an experience of the presence of God as we worship today. Allow the Holy Spirit to connect what you might know to be true and and the, the truth that we're going to be singing from the screens. Allow the Holy Spirit to connect that in your heart and apply it to your identity and then walk it out as a worshiper this morning, responding with life and power and joy as a child of God. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word and I just confess, God, that without your Holy Spirit, these words today are going to be perhaps something encouraging, but not something that's transformative. So I ask you now, Holy Spirit, to bring from heaven the kingdom and the truth about who God is into our hearts and into our minds so that we could allow it to flow out of our lives. Help us, God, to to see you and to know your love and to respond in worship, to respond in our lives. Just declare today, God, you are worthy of our praise. You are worth it. Only you are worthy. And so we offer you now our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.